And uh, as we begin, you know, Andrew uh, did such a good job uh, setting up the theme this morning, this theme of waiting well. And uh, a few years ago, Eugene Peterson, who is a favorite author of mine, he's described uh, as the pastor to pastors. He died last this year. And he wrote a, a memoir entitled The Pastor that I, it was, has been very meaningful to me. And he um, compares the life of a pastor in there, in this book, to the role of a harpooner. So if, you, if you're familiar, a harpooner is the member of a ship's crew, like 19th century, that uh, would throw a harpoon at a whale when the, sh- when the whale was close enough to the ship. And so while the rest of the crew is struggling, you can kind of picture this against the waves of the ocean, um, this harpooner is waiting and just conserving their energy for that moment, because the harpoons were very large and made of steel and things. And so um, I'll, I'll read from this book, because he just does such a good job describing this setting. So um, in Herman Melville's Moby Dick... There's this turbulent scene in which the whaleboat is scudding along a frothing ocean in pursuit of a great white whale named Moby Dick. The sailors are laboring fiercely. Every muscle is taut. All attention and energy is concentrated on the task. The cosmic conflict between good and evil is joined chaotic sea and demonic sea monster versus the morally outraged man, Captain Ahab. In this boat, however, there is not, there's one man who does nothing. He doesn't hold out an oar. He doesn't perspire, he doesn't shout, he's languid in the crash and the cursing. This man is the harpooner, quiet, poised, and waiting. And then this sentence uh, by Herman Melville, quote, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. I'll read that again. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. And then Eugene Peterson goes on and says, History is a novel of spiritual conflict. The church is a whaleboat. In such a world, noise is inevitable, and immense energy is expended. But there is no harpooner, but if there's no harpooner in the boat, there'll be no proper finish to the chase. Or if the harpooner is exhausted, having abandoned his assignment and become an oarsman. He'll not be ready and accurate when it's time to throw his javelin. Somehow it all seems, Peterson says, more compelling to assume the work of an oarsman, laboring mightily in a moral cause or throwing our energy into the fray as we know that has immortal consequence. And it always seems more dramatic to take on the outrage of Captain Ahab, obsessed with a vision of vengeance and retaliation, brooding over the ancient injury done by the enemy. But there is, however... Other more important work to do. Someone must throw the dart. Some must be harpooners. I just love that image. And uh, in so many ways, but I have have one small disagreement with it that I want to share with you. Um, Because see, Peterson sees this way of describing life as the life of a pastor. I just see it as a metaphor for the best kind of life that every one of us in this room can be living. Every one of us. From the youngest to the oldest, the most spiritual to the least spiritual. Some of you probably think I've got holy hands or something, but I don't. <laughs> I curse. I'm full of all kinds of cynicism and doubt. I get mad at my kids. There's those of us in the room that have all the faith in the world. There are those in a season of just immense doubt. So as followers of Christ, I think what Peterson is then saying is we're called, all of us, to be harpooners. Each and every one of us, each and every day of our lives. 
We're called to a life of waiting. This is why God says in Psalm 46, that famous line, be still and know that I'm God. And I love the New York and Standard Version of that, which just simply says, cease striving. Cease your weary striving. So we have to learn the truth that God's the one. He's the victorious one. Um, he's strong enough to conquer the darkness of our, li- our world. Not We aren't. Life's not about doing great things for God, getting busy for God, outgodding God somehow. Most of life is just simply about being present in the moment, whatever that moment is, and just waiting on God, responding to God. Listen to this. When you're called to respond, when the moment comes. That's what it means to be a harpooner, to be waiting and res- so you can respond. And this is what it means to follow Jesus in, the, in Advent, the season of Advent. And so the question we face today is, so what? Great. That's a great image. Love that image, Jack. Thanks for reading. Practically, how do you watch and wait in the real world? Like when you're at your desk tomorrow or when your children are pulling in five different directions and there's only like one or two of them. (laughs) Uh, When you're facing decisions around real questions of of your health, your future, or your marriage. Like what might it look like for the Spirit of God to form us into harpooners that were the ones we're called to be in each of those real settings and then the hundreds more that we face. So thankfully, Luke 2 has all the answers we need, okay? And so we're going to look at this story of Jesus being dedicated in the temple, which actually happens after Jesus is born, um, which is okay. <laughs> uh, but it's a story through which we learn that the ordinary moments of life, as well as ordinary people in our life, are pregnant with meaning, okay? So we're going to look at this story under three, the frame of three headings, the context of waiting, the posture of waiting, and the opportunity in waiting, okay? So let's do this. First, the context of waiting, and this is in kind of verse 27, uh, where we have, we're told that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to Jerusalem uh, to, to, quote, do what the custom of the law required of them. And so what this is, this is just a nice summary statement of what's the, the kind of three separate ceremonies that are taking place here in Luke 2. There's three. There's the purification ceremony that involves Mary. Actually, interestingly, it involves Mary and Joseph because Joseph was part of Mary's, or, uh, Jesus' delivery, which is another sermon for another day, but that normally wouldn't have been his role. So he, he helps deliver Jesus. And <laughs> that's an amazing thing. I think he's just such a great example of manhood. I just love that. So, but he's required alongside Mary um, to be purified. That's about 40 days after the birth of their son, Jesus. This is outlined in Leviticus 12. Then there's the presentation of Jesus as uh, Mary and Joseph's firstborn son. This is outlined in Exodus 13, Numbers 18. And then finally, there's the dedication of Jesus to the Lord's service, which is common for every child in Israel. We do this with all your kids, we hope. We dedicate them to the Lord. That's just something the Bible shows us in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. So these are the three ceremonies that are taking place here in Luke 2. All of, and all of this is happening, and, what it mean, and that's what it means for Mary and Joseph to be doing what the law required of them, okay? And in that way, I just think, what, what I, I imagine Mary and Joseph weren't the only new parents in the temple that day. Like, there's probably a lot. Of, it's like going to the DMV. There's a lot of people there. There's a long line. It's just a normal part of parenthood. You just do it. As one commentator says, nothing could be more ordinary for a Jewish couple than to take their newborn son to the temple to be dedicated, to be purified themselves. It's just what she did. Indeed, Mary and Joseph... We're just simply practicing their religion in the most ordinary way they knew or possible, which is the point and the first key for us here in this passage, that it's ordinary to these things in these places by these people in this way. It's just an ordinary day and an otherwise ordinary time. It's in that calendar year, this is Advent, but 
in reality, it's just ordinary time. This is just a normal day. I guess sort of like the other day when I was out of my mailbox, <clears throat> opened it up, and uh, sandwiched between another credit card offer and a couple Christmas cards from y'all was this official jury duty notice. First one I've ever gotten. Good day for me. And so I realized on, uh, earlier this week that on January 6th, I get the report for duty. And when I looked it up, because this is how I am, I'm conniving, if I could get out of it, I found out, no, because it's a hearing that is constitutionally guaranteed, so according to law, I could ironically go to jail for skipping, which I really want to do. If I looked up, if I get paid, I, guess what? I get paid $10 a day, so jackpot. Some of you have done this. When I looked up if I could bring a laptop, a magazine, or a book, they said, yeah, sure, because we have Wi-Fi, and you're going to be here every day, all day, for as long as it takes, just waiting. Just another day. I mean, some of you have done this, right? Ordinary time, ordinary space. It's just, that's what this is. And by the way, this story involves ordinary people. Like, look at Simeon and Anna for, for a second with me. Verse 25. Simeon's described as a righteous and devout man. So some think this means he's a priest. Like, they think, like, he has holy hands. Or he's, some have conjectured, literally, that he's the great Rabbi Hillel in disguise. Like, he's got a disguise on Who's Gamaliel's father? Gamaliel was the teacher of the Apostle Paul. They think this, literally. But that's conjecture, because what the text tells us, his name is Simeon. And Simeon is a common name in that time, like Joe, Nick, Dave, or Bill. It's just a name. Just another guy. Simeon's just a, a guy, a simple guy, a layman, not a priest, not a prophet, just a man. Uh, indeed, little is known about this guy, except that what we're told, he happens to live in Jerusalem, he was righteous and devout, so he read his Bible and he prayed and did what the law required. And the Holy Spirit had rested upon him. He had a sense of God's Spirit in his life just enough that, he, that on this particular day, at this particular time, he got a prompting or a nudge to go to church. Like how many of you have gotten a prompting or a nudge before? Like we've all had these. A nudge to talk to that person. Hmm, I should talk to them. Or a nudge to check into that opportunity, you know, on LinkedIn or whatever. Like, huh. I should check that out, even though I've got a great job. A nudge to go to church that day. You woke up, you're like, huh, I was going to watch the Seahawks, but I think we should go to church today. Some of you, well, they're at 4 p.m., luckily, so it's okay. And see, uh, we all get nudges, and for Simeon, that nudge, this ordinary guy, this nudge, led him to go to church. It put him, listen to this, in the same place at the same time as Mary and Joseph, ordinary people, who just happened to be there in the temple in line, presenting Jesus to the Lord that day. So he was just obedient enough to be there at the crossroads, so to speak, at the right place at the right time. This is an ordinary day, ordinary time, ordinary Simeon. And by the way, look, ordinary Anna. Verse 36, we're told she's very old. She's a prophet, but she's also really old. I'll be sensitive here, but some commentators have said she's 100, I know, some of you, but uh, she's like maybe 105 so they think this. She's a widow, she, which is that time like a death sentence if you're a widow because it meant that you, could hold, you, you, you had no property. Women couldn't own property, but if you didn't have a man, you, couldn't, you didn't have any property and no means of income. You couldn't have a job. No status in society. Like you are just the lowest. She's the most marginalized person in this entire story. And she's, by the way, been living... Like, think of this, like living on the temple grounds for years. Like, come here, live in the church. That sounds like a life. <laughs> this is, she's ordinary. Like the most ordinary person in the story. And not ordinary in the sense of plain, like Simeon, like this layman. 
But ordinary in the derogatory sense, like not extraordinary, not special, someone who lacks significance, someone whose time had come and then gone, someone whose story was kind of over, right? 105, over. That's kind of what we think. And so what this all means, this rich context here, is it means that we, have, we might have something to learn, friends, about God in the most ordinary moments and from the most ordinary and unsuspecting people. Uh, which is important, and I think a prophetic word for us, since ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary. Like, who wants, like, this bumper sticker on their car? My child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary. Like, none of you want that if you have kids. Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town and he's a member of an ordinary church? Well, this is pretty ordinary. If you're new here, thanks for coming. But we're ordinary. Uh, Who has ordinary friends, you know, and has an ordinary job. Like, no, none of us wants that, really. I mean, that's why everyone from the smallest child in the room here earlier to the oldest adult naturally wants in some way to be extraordinary, outstanding, or make some sort of unique contribution to the world and if all else fails, just wants to be thought of that way for even a brief time. That's why we give achievement awards to our preschoolers. Like, really? You achieved something? No, you just were a kid, you know? And we all, the 15 minutes of fame that Andy Warhol once talked about, we'd all have, we, it's a real thing. Like, we, like, this is why I watch Lakers games or, Seah- or Seahawks games, and those people on the jumbo camera are like, yeah, I'm on camera for like a second. Like, that's an exciting thing. So what? And so, like, in our modern media-saturated world, that just gives our desperate souls a sense and a hope and assurance that we won't be forgotten, we're not going to be overlooked, that we're not run-of-the-mill creatures, that we're not ordinary. You hear me? Rod Dreher, uh, in he's, you know, a controversial author, obviously, but he wrote a, a memoir a couple years ago. His sister died, and it's called The, the Little Way of Ruthie Deming, beautiful, or Ruthie Lemming, beautiful book. He says this, though, that everydayness is our problem. Everydayness is our problem. It's easy, he says, to think about what you do in wartime or if a hurricane blows through your town and takes out your house or if you spend a month in Paris or if your guy, quote-unquote guy, wins the election or if you win the lottery and bought that thing you really want or whatever. It's a lot more difficult to figure out how you're going to get through today, especially if today is not a day you're particularly excited about, if it's a day marked with despair Anxiety or just plain boredom? <laughs> like, how many of you felt bored this week? A little bored. How might I get through plain old today? That's what Drew wonders. How many of us, for parents, is that the question? Like, we have something to learn in this season, this ordinary season we're in, this context God's blessed us with, you know? Changing diapers, cleaning up spaghetti off the walls taking kids to school. For others, it's the, the rubber of faith meets the road of ordinary in the midst of our working years. Like this time where we're literally, many of us, just living out our own version of Groundhog Day. Like it's every day, rinse and repeat. Every day. Get up, go to work, take the bus, whatever. Come home, eat, sleep. You know, maybe go to 24-hour fitness at some ungodly hour and do it over, over again. Like equally for those of us in our last years, I know I've been putting you guys on blast this morning, but like this last third or so, uh, this is important because some of us are wondering, like, we're waiting on the Lord, like Simeon, like Anna, wondering, is Jesus here? Like, if I show up today, you know, is he here? Do I have anything left to offer right now in my life? I've retired. What do I have left? Uh, 
These and many more are spaces, times, and circumstances, and people, these are the people God's using to get to us and to reveal to us himself and to demonstrate to us like faith and what faithfulness looks like. So that our task, our, mine and yours, is like Simeon, Anna, Mary, and Joseph to embrace those people, embrace this time, and engage in this space, this ordinary time that we find ourselves in as the space of God's kingdom being revealed and the space of God's blessing in our lives. Um, I once heard someone say that God doesn't bless you somewhere else and someone else through some who else, but here and now is where God needs you to be. Right here, right now, is where God's going to bless you. So that's the first thing we learn and what it means to watch and wait. That As harpooners, it begins in the context of the ordinary, this ordinary day, okay? Here's the second thing. This posture of waiting that we're invited into. Um, and where we're going to learn that it's how we wait in the ordinary moments that matters. So first look with me again at Simeon in verse 25. It says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I kind of talked about that, but in that verse, to really gain a good understanding of what it's trying to say, um, you have to look at the Greek language. And the Greek has this treasure trove of words that means to wait or to look. Um, One that means look up, another means like look away, one that means look upon, one means look in. There's all kinds of words. And there's this one that's being used here that means to look forward. Uh, it's this word prosdecami, which is a compound of two words. So decami, which means to, to look, and then pros is forward. So literally, you combine the two in this compound sense, and you have this picture of someone who's forwardly looking or waiting forwardly, which is a beautiful... The grammar's poor, but it's a really great image. So it made me think this week of this time in my life... Um, where I formed a relationship, a friendship with this black lab, this sweet black lab, this summer camp that I worked at in college in Missouri. And this black black guy's name was Duke. (laughs) Like, of course it was Duke, right? 100-pound black lab. And uh, big, (laughs) kind of never bathed black lab, just smelled when you touched it, right? And I was the lifeguard, head lifeguard at the waterfront of this camp. And uh, essentially that just meant I, I got to stand on the beach and not in a lifeguard chair as the kids are blobbing or... I don't know, a ski boat, I was watching campers risk life and limb on their, on their tubes. But I just stood there on the beach and, and um, made sure it all kind of flowed, made sure nobody died, right? Uh, and so, of course, Duke, every day, would find me. You know, he'd come down from the upper part of camp with this really disgusting, soaking wet tennis ball in his mouth. And, uh, and he always had it handy when he was with me, but he'd come down to the beach and he'd stand there and face me. He'd kind of look around, survey the scene, and then drop his ball right at my feet, back to the water, and sit there. And look at me, look at the ball. And you guys have seen Black Labs do this. Look at me, look at the ball. And then you just look at the ball and wait. And you walk back a few steps and wait. And you sit there. His ears are just perked. His eyes are fixed on the ball. He's shivering. He's just sitting there watching the ball. You know, you've seen this. And it could be minutes. Here's, here's the key. I could be sitting there. I'm doing my job. I'm not really focused on Duke. It'd be minutes before I pick up the ball, and I'd launch it as far as I could in the lake, and I'd say, go get it, Duke. And he'd just be off like lightning, 100-pound lab, bounding through the water, dog paddling to get this ball, bring it back, drop it back at my feet, and sit there and wait and watch and wait and watch for me to throw it again. And we do this all morning, all afternoon. Like any movement... Toward the ball, if I just took a step, he'd crouch, you know, and be ready. If you pet him, he'd let you do it. He'd lick you, which would be disgusting, but he would not take his eyes off the ball. He just waited 
He was forwardly waiting, or back, backwardly, I guess, but forwardly waiting. He's like a picture, poor Simeon, of Simeon, like, like not demanding, not hurrying, not pushing his way. I can see this crowd at the temple and the line. Simeon's not pushing his way through people. He's there in the foyer getting his coffee. You know, he just showed up. God said, go to church, waiting, calmly expecting. His eyes are peeled. I can just see him surveying the crowd. You know, he's been waiting for the Messiah for years. Waiting. Is today the day? I've been waiting. Is to, I'm gonna, is, he's looking for the right face. Ears are perked. Eyes are fixed on that moment, that tennis ball moment. He wants to know Jesus. And I wonder what it'll look like for us to be like Simeon, like Duke. Like, I wonder, like, how many of us are waiting that expectantly for God to show up in our lives? Like, you know, that laser focus. We're waiting for healing in the midst of a difficult diagnosis, for a new opportunity in the midst of difficult work, for a phone call in the midst of a difficult relationship, waiting for children to be born or to grow up or to go leave the house or come home, I don't know, waiting for faith to grow. Like, you've been praying and nothing's happened. Waiting for changes to happen in our society, in our politics. Just waiting, hoping. You know, I wonder how many of us wait like that, forwardly, just watching and listening patiently, vigilant, like keeping an eye out for a movement of God, just a small movement of God. So utterly focused on God, like that all those other distractions that are going on the beach, so to speak, you know, kids on the blobs and all that other stuff, just so focused. God, what are you doing? God, what are you saying? Hey, God, are you here right now? Jesus says it like this in, in Mark's gospel. He says, it's like a man who takes a trip and leaves home and puts his servants in in charge. Each is assigned to a task, but he commands the gatekeeper to stand watch, stay at their post, watching, because you have no idea when the homeowner is returning. You don't know the timetable, whether it's going to be evening, midnight, or in the morning, which is why I say to you, Jesus says, and I'm saying to everybody, stay at your post. (laughs) Keep a sharp lookout. Keep watch. Stay awake. So that's the lesson we learned from Simeon about this lesson of paying attention, about listening and watching for God. But there's also Anna, real quick. Look at verse 37 real quick with me. We're told that Anna has been in this temple all day, every day, for all these years, worshiping day and night, fasting and praying. So if the key word for Simeon is watchfulness, here's the key word for Anna, repetition. It's a little bit like ordinariness, but it's a little different too. So in a book that was written a couple years ago by a woman named Tish Harrison Warren, it's called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. She says this, our hearts and our loves are shaped by what we do again and again and again. Our hearts and our loves are shaped by what we do again and again and again. Um, And then she says this, on Sunday as we gather in worship, we learn together to sit in repetition and predictability. We learn the repetitive slow rhythms of a life of faith. That's why you come to church and do this. Um, not because there's magic that's happening, but because it's, re- it's a part of repetition and a rhythm that teaches you, she says, to slow down enough so that you might more bravely enter a dull Tuesday morning or an eventless Friday night and embrace that as daily life and believe in that, that God's going to meet you in those small moments. And then she goes on to say, we're not left like Sisyphus, cursed by the gods to a life of meaninglessness, repeating the same pointless task for eternity. Instead, These small bits of our day are profoundly meaningful because they are the site of our worship, the crucible, she says, of our formation, 
is the monotony of daily routines. The crucible of our formation is the monotony of daily routines. And my friends, in a culture that craves the big and the entertaining and the exciting, and this is happening in churches, big rock concert churches, uh, the dramatic, the cultivating, like you go to the mall, cultivating, like cultivating space for silence and repetition is so critical for us, especially in this season right now, where you can't, you can't find space like that anymore. Um, and so do you see the connection to Anna, who's just daily, nightly, worshiping, fasting, and praying, repeating the things that I think she probably learned. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. She probably learned this as a child, and so she's just practicing, as Brother Lawrence says, the presence of God. She's just doing what she was taught. Harrison Warson then says this in her book. She says this, there's this note hanging above the kind of pseudo-monastic community she's a part of um, that says this. It's hanging above the, the kitchen sink. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> how many of you don't love to do the dishes? Uh, I mean, that's, how many of us does that describe? Like, who longs for the revolution? Every one of us for things to be made new, whole, and beautiful, for people, like I said, we're people that long for change, for God to show up, to do something. Today, God, like make yourself known. But what we see here, and Anna is teaching us, is that we can't get to the revolution without learning to do our dishes first. Like, if I'm honest, I want to skip the dishes. I want to skip confession. I want to skip forgiveness. I want to skip lament. I want to skip silence. I want to skip quiet time. I want to skip all that stuff. I want to get to Christmas. I want to get then to Easter. I don't want to do any of the other stuff in between. I want to skip the daily monotonous routine stuff to get to the thrill of an edgier kind of mountaintop faith. And friends, what Anna's teaching us is that it's in the dailiness of our lives, the making of your bed, the doing of your dishes, the praying for your enemies, the sitting in the quiet, um, the reading of your Bible, the fasting and waiting and hoping. It's through that small stuff that God's transformation is taking root in your life and things are happening. So are we putting ourselves, or would we, in a posture this Advent that's repetitively ordinary? <laughs> like look, forwardly looking, repetitively ordinary, just waiting for God like Simeon and Anna, okay? That's the second thing. Here's the last thing I want to do, and we're going to respond. Um, and this has to do with kind of the opportunity. So a, a posture we have that's repetitively ordinary, forward looking, that leads to this opportunity that waits all of us, okay? Whoever we are. Because um, see, some of us, we came to this story this morning, just think about your week for a moment. What's coming tomorrow? Well, today even. I mean, what do you have going on? Think of your calendar. Y'all got a calendar? You can take your phone out right now if you want. Just look at your calendar. What do you have going on? Some of us come to this story um, like Mary and Joseph. Like, we're ordinary people doing the most, you got nothing on the calendar this week that's extraordinary. No big meetings at work. No really important people to go meet. No holiday parties yet. Like that's next week. You're just going to do your grocery shopping, pay your bills, take your kids to school, get a house to clean. Nothing can be more ordinary than your week. You're Mary and Joseph. For others, you're like Simeon and Anna. Come to the story, look at your week again. You're waiting, you're wondering, God, what's around the corner? What's next? What do I, what's going to happen? What's, what are you doing? You're like you're repetitively waiting. You're practicing the presence of God. You're praying. You're worshiping. You're reading. You're serving. You've showed up today. You're giving. You're wondering, God, are you doing anything? I'm doing it. I'm being faithful. But I need, I need to know. 
Uh, so you're a character in the story. This is your story, not just some ancient story that was written thousands of years ago, your story. And that's key because every one of the characters in the story, did you notice this, had an opportunity to encounter the real Jesus. So I have this Bible, um, this journaling Bible that I got years ago. It's one of these that has these wide margins. Some of you have these. And next to this story uh, years ago, uh, I wrote next to verse 28 where it says that Simeon took Jesus into his arms and blessed God saying, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. I wrote next to that, what would I say to Jesus? <laughs> what would I say to Jesus? Like, I, we don't really know what he says to Jesus. He's, it's just like his Rafiki moment. Like, he's holding Simba. And uh, he's got to, he gets an encounter with Jesus. He gets to speak to Jesus. We have the freedom in our lives to, to talk to Jesus. So here's my question. What will you do with that freedom this week? You have the freedom. What will you say to Jesus this week? What do you need to say to God? Like, maybe even right now in these last moments of worship we have left. Like, it might need to be an honest word. God, I'm frustrated right now. It might need to be a desperate word. God, I have no idea what to do in this season. It might need to be a word of gratitude. God, thank you so much for the gift of my marriage, of a new child, of this job I have, whatever it is. What will you do? What will you say to Jesus this week? So we're going to sing here now, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which is a prayer, really Adventy kind of song. Might we make this an opportunity where we get to speak to Jesus in this, this space? So I'm going to do that first by just taking one minute. It's going to feel like an eternity for those of us that aren't used to this, kind of reflecting back on ordinariness. Uh, one minute of this quiet where you can speak to God in the quiet of your own heart. And then our worship team is going to lead us in that song. God, as our kids are coming back in, and we thank you that they tug us into the spaces um, where you are. They remind us that you're here in this moment. You're calling us to live in the moment. And you've given us freedom. We're going to sing here, God, come thou long expected Jesus born to set thy people free. You've given us the freedom, God, uh, to, to speak to you, to express to you all that's on our hearts. And so as we sing now, Lord, this old familiar song, would you set us free to do so? I pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's worship the Lord.